Hi, my name is Sarah Cooper, and I'd like to welcome you to Love Chapel Hill, where our name is our mission to love Chapel Hill with the heart of Jesus. Thank you for worshiping with us today. Hey everybody, my name is Valerie, and I'm part of the Connections team at Love Chapel Hill. Raise your hand if you miss being in church with other people. You can put your hand down. If you just raise your hand, I would like to invite you to our church's virtual watch party. Every Sunday at 10 a.m., the Connections team is hosting a Zoom call so that you can hop on, watch church with other people, and then stick around afterwards to discuss what came up in the message or maybe what you've got going on this week. It's a great opportunity for us to be together without being in person. And all the information for it is on our church's website, lovechapelhill.com. You can get information for the Zoom link and the password and all of that stuff. So I hope to see you next Sunday at 10 a.m. Hi, Love Chapel Hill. I'm Vicki Stocking, and this is Bob Stocking. If you're new to our community, please fill out a virtual connect card. If you're watching on Facebook or YouTube, there's a link right there you can use to connect with us. You'll also find a link at lovechapelhill.com. You can also find information about Quest Kids and prayer groups and discipleship bands like the one that's meeting behind us in our backyard. Have a great week. We love you all. Good morning, friends. So believe it or not, we are at the first week of Advent. We are officially in the Christmas season, um, which for some of us is super exciting. We already have our Christmas decorations up and have had them up. And for some of us, maybe we're not feeling it so much. Um, and that's okay. Normally as a church, this is a really exciting season together. Um, we have a special worship set up and every week we'll light one of the candles of our Advent wreath together. Um, obviously this year's a little different, but we wanted to continue that tradition. Um, and we wanted to try our best um, to experience this Advent season together. So today is the first week of Advent and this week is hope. And we started out strong with this um, idea of hope, this feeling of hope, this expectation of hope, even in a time when we might feel hopeless. Um, that is how the Christmas story starts. Um, and so today I'll be lighting this candle for you. And I will also be reading one of my favorite passages on hope. Um, the passage I'm reading this morning uh, is Psalm 130. So let this be your prayer today. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins.
Hello, Love Chapel Hill. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving and happy first Sunday of Advent. So this is uh, the part of the Christian year where we are preparing ourselves for the arrival of the Messiah. That's what the word Advent means. Uh, it simply means arrival. And it's this time where the church around the world uh, and across so many different cultures and across time has been observing this. Um, and instead of just rushing ahead to the moment of the nativity, uh, instead we intentionally sink down into the story uh, with the people of Israel. And we, we remember how um, they went through generation and generation and generation and generation of waiting and longing for the fulfillment of that promise of the Messiah, the King of Israel, who would come and redeem God's people and rescue God's people from their sins. And so that's what this whole season is about. It's about intentionally waiting, about intentionally longing but in the midst of that, it's not a waiting that's associated with despair. Instead, it's a waiting that is associated and rooted in a defiant kind of hope that we trust and we hope. And so we look ahead. I've been thinking a lot about um, the words of O Holy Night. That is one of my favorite uh, anthems of this time of year. And uh, I've been thinking a lot about the words and especially this one line. A weary world rejoices. A weary world rejoices. I think that captures where we are and reminds us that in the midst of all of that, we are rooted in this hope of the arrival of Jesus. So we remember, as those words say, uh, a weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. We've talked together about this reality of uh, the, the reality of walking through the night together. Many of you are in that experience right now where you would uh, say that this season of your life feels like a dark night of the soul. And we remember that word of hope that the quickest way to the dawn is not to turn and chase the sunset, but to turn and move through the night towards the morning. And so I want to encourage you in that. Keep walking. And God himself, hope himself, is walking with you. That's the promise of Advent. So that's what Advent is. It's this spiritual practice of pilgrimage, of walking that desert road with the ancient people of Israel, longing with them, uh, reciting and, and, and aching uh, with those, those words of the poet's uh, longing for the arrival of this hope in Jesus. One way that we uh, practice that is through lighting the Advent candle. Uh, and so today we lit the Advent candle of hope. And I want to challenge you and encourage you um, that even though we can't be together in person right now, um, that's something that you can do at home. And uh, that's a way that you can practice with your family uh, and have that reminder with you uh, every day. They're right in your home. Uh, set up your own Advent wreath. You need five candles, all right, four uh, for one for each week of Advent. And the fifth is the Christ candle. 
that you light on Christmas Eve as this moment uh, of recognizing the culmination of that hope in the arrival of Jesus. So I want to encourage you to do that uh, and send us pictures of that. Show us what uh, what your uh, Advent wreath looks like, where you have it set up, and uh, how you're practicing that. So today, uh, as we begin in this season of Advent and observing that together, we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew and chapter 1, and we're only going to get to the first verse, okay? Just uh, chapter one, verse one of the Gospel of Matthew. And over the next stretch, we're gonna stay in the Gospel of Matthew together and root ourselves there in this New Testament narrative of the person of Jesus, his arrival, uh, his ministry, uh, ultimately uh, his journey to the cross and the triumph of his resurrection, his ascension and his sending of us out into the world. But today we start at the beginning Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, oddly, he, uh, Matthew starts in this way. He says, A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's how he begins his book. And then after that sentence, he goes into this list of names. Some of them we would recognize, many of them we would have trouble pronouncing and might feel like we've never heard them before in our lives. And so this record of names, and so it's odd for us at first to think about him beginning in this way. Why would he begin in this way? Uh, and it's important because of this. Uh, the Gospel of Matthew is written primarily to a Jewish audience. Um, and so the author is seeking to establish the proof that Jesus is the Messiah that the Jewish people have been waiting for, even as unlikely as it might seem to many that Jesus is the fulfillment of that. And so he begins in that way. I'm, I'm telling you a story about Jesus, the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And by making that statement, uh, he roots Jesus in that long history of the Jewish story, of their story, the story of one family that God used to bless the entire world. The Jewish people had been longing and waiting and looking, keeping watch for the arrival of the Messiah, and they knew what they were looking for. And so intentionally, Matthew begins in this way and begins with their own story and roots the story of Jesus in this story of the Jewish people. We recognize that the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, the reality that even though all of us have sinned, uh, all of us can be brought into a reconciled relationship with God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the hope of the gospel, that even though we could never make our way to God, God made his way to us, to rescue us, and to bring us into this reconciled relationship with him. We recognize that the gospel story is universal. That is for everyone. That is open for everyone, for the entire world. And so the gospel story is universal. But Matthew reminds us right off the bat that it's also deeply local. This has deep roots. That even though the gospel is transcendent and rises above all cultures, it is at the same time imminent. 
and it has a way of speaking directly into the culture and the moment that you are in right now. We know that it's for the whole world. And Matthew reminds us it's also for you right here and right now. That's a part of the powerful way that he begins this story. He, he roots Jesus in this story of the Jewish people. It's interesting that Matthew would begin that way. Because as we're going to find out a little bit later, uh, a few weeks down the road, we're going to find out Matthew's background and Matthew's own backstory. And we're going to find out that Matthew was a tax collector. As we've said multiple times before, uh, a tax collector was a person um, that the Roman Empire hired to collect taxes for them. Uh, and when a Jewish person took on that job, when they began to work for the Roman Empire and take taxes away from their own people, that was seen as an absolute betrayal of their own people. Uh, it, was, it was seen as selling out to the Romans so that they could get rich off of the suffering of their own people. The Romans had oppressed the Jewish people, had occupied their place. And, and in that oppressive reign, uh, part of the weight and the suffering of that is in the way that they just taxed them into oblivion, it felt like. And now a tax collector is benefiting off of that, off of the suffering of their own people. And so tax collectors were absolute outcasts and they were hated because of that, for participating in that injustice and benefiting off of that injustice. And so Matthew, the tax collector, writing this story about the Jewish Messiah, the one who comes out of the, the line of David, the one who comes out of the family of Abraham, and yet a tax collector is betraying David's nation and a tax collector is betraying Abraham's family. And they're saying a tax collector is telling this story. And Matthew says, I know, right? It's crazy. This is how far the grace of this story reaches. This is how wild this story I'm about to tell you gets that even someone like me could be reached and rescued and redeemed by the power and the depth of the grace of this man, Jesus. So Matthew begins intentionally in this way. First chapter, first verse. This is the story of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. These two designations, son of David, son of Abraham, capture the massive sweep of the Jewish story and embedded just in these names themselves are the deep memories of the promises of God to his people. And so that's why he begins in this way. It reminds us that the story of Jesus, as we've already said, that the story of Jesus has living roots. Okay, it has living roots. Jesus is not your houseplant. All right. Jesus is not your fake Christmas tree that is all decorated up right now. Uh, if you're like me, I didn't. I November 1st, we went for it. All right. This year needed it and we completely went for it. All right. But this is a tree that I box up and will put away again and won't get out until maybe November 1st next year. Hopefully it's later. Hopefully we're doing better then and won't need it. Um, 
but it's this thing that has no roots to it. It has no roots and it's portable and it's basically a decoration in your life. Jesus is not that. Jesus is not that. Jesus has deep roots and you cannot take Jesus up out of the context in which his story happens without doing damage to the landscape around him. If you try to remove Jesus from the context of his story and uproot him in that way, then you will do damage to the entire landscape of the story and you will never understand the story of Jesus. The story of Jesus is mysterious enough. It's mind-blowing enough. It's, it's hard enough already to get our minds and our hearts around. It helps us when we keep him rooted in the context of it. And that speaks to us deeply about the reality of who he is. One other piece here. This is another thing that we've repeated before, but we have to keep coming back to it. We cannot forget this part. The incarnation is such a powerful mystery. It is this mind-blowing theological truth that Jesus is fully God and fully human. God in the flesh. That is mind-blowing. And most of the time, when we try to think through that, we try to think through the possibility of how does God become a person? And we think about uh, this divinity of Jesus, and it blows our minds to think about that. But I want to challenge you, especially in the year that we find ourselves in, that perhaps the more mysterious part is not just that he becomes a human, but get your heart around this. It's the kind of human that he intentionally becomes. It's not just that it's God in the flesh. That is amazing enough. But what kind of flesh? That he intentionally locates himself among an oppressed group of people who have been through a history of oppression in their lifetime as a people, who have experienced what it was like to go through hundreds of years of slavery and to long for freedom and liberation from that, who saw God come through for them and bring them out of that slavery into freedom and establish them as a people, but now they find themselves under oppression again. And it's in that moment and to that group of people that Jesus intentionally decides to arrive, decides for the advent to happen. It's in that moment of history, in that place, and at that time. We have to sit in that and we have to continue to ask God to teach us what that means and what that means for where we should be where we should find ourselves. If that's where God intentionally locates himself, then for some of you, you've had that experience in your life and you relate to that. You know what it feels like to be oppressed. You know what it feels like to walk and to live under the weight of injustice. And the gospel is telling you, God knows too. He intentionally located himself in that moment, in that place, so that he could relate. And so that the freedom that he's bringing would be a full kind of freedom. Absolutely, it's a spiritual salvation and a spiritual freedom, but it is a full and complete and holistic kind of freedom that he has come to bring as well. For those of us who have not experienced that, we need to listen to the prophet Micah 
once again and to remind ourselves that yes, the challenge is to do justice and the challenge is to love mercy, but it's also to walk humbly. We cannot miss that part. We have to walk humbly in relationship and to sit as students in relationship and to listen so that we can understand perspectives we don't have on our own. Jesus did that. Jesus did that. The God of the universe humbled himself and stepped into the reality of what it meant to be oppressed so that he could bring freedom out of that reality. He's challenging us to do that. Yes, do justice. Our hearts beat for it. We want to be a part of it. Yes, love mercy. Our hearts beat for it, but also walk humbly. Do not forget that part. Last piece here as we're wrapping this up. In what he has to say, we're going to talk more next week about this piece of the son of Abraham. There's so much to unpack right there. Uh, today, we're going to stop with the son of David part and what he has to say about that. Uh, the reality of Jesus being called the son of David. Yes, it means he's coming out of David's lineage and out of David's line. But it's also saying that he is the king and what kind of king is he going to be? in the line of David and in the same kind of king that David was in the sense that David is called a king after God's own heart. And he becomes this picture for us of what the Messiah is going to be like, even though the Messiah is going to overflow in abundance beyond anything that David was. And in all the brokenness of David's life, the Messiah is going to bring healing and redemption. And so as we look at David's life, we see that, that he is this unexpected kind of king with this upside down and backwards kind of kingdom that he comes into and that God establishes. He's a person who comes out of complete obscurity. The people of Israel were looking for a king and they begged God for a king and they picked their own king. And guess what? They did not pick David. Instead, they picked King Saul. Why? It says because he stood head and shoulders taller than the others, and he looked like a good leader. And to their eyes, he looked like someone who was successful and powerful and strong. And they said, we want to be like that person. We're going to follow that person. What kind of king was Saul? Only the kind of king who led for himself. He only led for himself. David, on the other hand, is this young shepherd boy who is in complete obscurity. When the prophet Samuel is charged with going to anoint the next king of Israel, he goes to David's family. Jesse is the father and he goes to Jesse and he says, bring out all of your sons. The next king of Israel is coming from your family. God has sent me to anoint the next king. And Jesse did what the rest of the people of Israel did. He brought out the sons that looked like they could be kings. And David was left in the field with the sheep. And he looks at all of Jesse's sons lined up and he says, this is not, the king isn't here. I'm not hearing the voice of the spirit telling me that any of these, I'm not supposed to anoint any of these. Do you have any other sons? And he says, well, there's one more, but I mean, he's the shepherd boy. He's out there with the sheep. I didn't even bother to bring him in. And Samuel says, I'll wait, go get him. 
And so they go, they bring David in, and immediately Samuel hears the voice of the Holy Spirit say to him, rise and anoint this boy. He is the king I have chosen. And so he does, and he anoints him, the unexpected king, the one who was overlooked, the one who completely surprised and shocked everyone else when he was the anointed one. We go on into the very famous story of David and Goliath. We're not going to get into all of that. There's one piece there, though, that stands out. Nobody else would go and fight the giant. David steps forward in courage and says, I know God is going to go with me. And what do they do when they send David into battle? They try to fit him with Saul's armor. They try to put armor on him that doesn't fit, armor that was fit for Saul, and they try to put it on David, and he can't even move in it. Why? Because it's not fit for him. It was fit for that other kind of king. And instead he says, no, I don't need that. I'm going to go with what God has already given me. And so he takes this sling, and he takes five stones, and he goes out and he faces down a giant with that, this unconventional strategy, this unlikely leader using this unexpected instrument. And when Jesus comes onto the scene in the Gospel of Matthew, we find the same thing happening. This person who is brought out of obscurity, we would never look at him and think, yeah, that's the person that we want to follow. He doesn't look like any other leader we've seen. He doesn't look like any other king that we've ever had. He's brought out of obscurity. It seems like there's no way that this could be the one. He lived in Nazareth and was overlooked in Nazareth of all places for 30 years where it seemed like nobody even noticed he was there. And yet he's the one that is chosen. But when he shows up, we're not ready for him because we've been looking for a different kind of king. We lost our place in the story. We forgot the story that we have been living in. And so we try to fit our leaders with this different kind of armor, the kind of armor that looks like the kind that a king should wear. And Jesus says, no, I'm not the kind of king that you expected. That stuff doesn't fit on me. Keep that for yourself. I'm not that kind of leader. That armor doesn't fit me. I came to lead in a completely different way. He comes as an unlikely leader. He uses an unexpected instrument. What's his instrument? The cross to defeat the giants of sin and death. And what's his unconventional strategy? It's to lay down his life out of love for us and then to pick it back up again in the power of his resurrection. Advent tells us, get ready for a different kind of story. Get ready for a different kind of story. It's an unlikely kind of leader. He will use an unexpected kind of instrument, and he will have an unconventional strategy. And right from the beginning of it, we see that this is going to be a completely different kind of story. God says, let me tell you what my strategy is going to be. Lean in, and let me tell you about my grand strategy And as we lean in, we hear the words of the prophet Isaiah. And he says, here's what I'm going to do. For unto us, a child is born. And unto us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will reign on the throne of David forever. 
He will reign, it tells us, in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7, with justice and righteousness. We've been talking about that a little bit, haven't we? This is the kind of king that he is going to be. Here's the grand strategy. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. We hear that and a weary world starts to rejoice. And our rejoicing is only matched by our wonder. We've been waiting. And the way that this story is playing out is wilder than even the stones and the sling that we saw from David. What's the weapon this time? We hear a virgin singing a lullaby. We hear a baby cry. All of hell shudders and a weary world rejoices. Amen. Heart and mind. Let in 
Patchers family, this is Chris. I'm honored once again to have the opportunity to provide a benediction. And as I think about 2020 and, and how odd of a year it's been, and somehow we find ourselves at the end of November, which I don't know about you, but for me, it's really hard to believe. It all is kind of blurred together. And to think that so much time has passed since we actually were all in the same room together, worshiping together, uh, it's really kind of mind boggling. And yet, as I think about this year and I think about um, the things I'm grateful for. And as I think about us heading into the season of Advent, uh, this time of waiting for the arrival of Jesus, uh, I think about all the things I'm grateful for. And there are lots of things that I could list. Uh, to get to the point, to be brief, uh, our church, the church family, Love Chapel Hill, uh, the church community, I'm incredibly grateful for. Uh, to have a chance to either sit in uh, towards the very end of, 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 of the story on Tuesday nights, just because of how my family schedule works these days, uh, and just a wonderful community there, and the and learning and, and the sharing that takes place there. Um, but whether it's part of uh, being part of the, the actual um, services on, on Sunday morning, the watch party. So I, I lost my word there for a moment there, my train of thought. To be part of that and to listen to the sermon live and then talk with others afterwards. Uh, those are things I'm incredibly grateful for. And, and there's so many other things I could list as well, right? Whether it's being surprised by a meal. Um, all on down the line, kids' church, to see my children take part in that uh, and, and to grow there and have people pour into them there. There's so many things that I'm grateful for. And so um, my word to you this, uh, this particular Sunday is that look back, and even though there are so many things that have been challenging and all of us are, are, have so many painful things that we've experienced because of COVID in particular and because of the isolation right, that, that, that has come about, uh, the social distancing and so forth, Take a moment to think about you know what you're grateful for. I know for me this church community is is, is very is one of the many things I'm grateful for, um, and so I encourage you to, to do that and then to thank God for those those things. So I thank I thank God for this church community um, and, and for the role it's played in my life and in the lives of, of, of countless others. So uh, as you enter into the season of Advent and the season of waiting, I encourage you to think about that for which you are grateful. Uh, and that's that's hard. I'm by no means trying to downplay <laughs> all of the hard things we've dealt with. Um, but I do encourage you to think about that and, and to then thank God for that thing for which for which you are grateful. So I hope that you all have a wonderful week uh, and be well. Mm -hmm.